0: Thank you so much for that warm introduction, and uh, yes, thank you to uh, to the musical worship team that led us in um, a time of worship, and to Dr. Cromwell and to the the Cheney family for um, inviting me here. Uh, it's been great already, and I look forward to the rest of our day together. So, um, as Dr. Cheney, uh, <laughs> Dr. Cheney, I'm already messing up right away. Um, as Dr. Cromwell said, um, I, I am at Sterling College. And so I don't think I represent your biggest enemy, uh, despite the fact that I come here today. And, and let me back up a little bit in saying that. Um, at this point, I'm a father of a, a three-year-old. We have another one on the way in just a couple of months. And so my life is basically work as a professor, go home and play with my son, do some chores, go to bed and, and start over each day. Um, and so I don't have a lot of free time. My My free time is watching um, maybe Cars or Cars 3. Uh, my son is not so into Cars 2, it's a weird like spy version of Cars, but Cars and Cars 3, I think I might have memorized at this point. Um, so I do that and then when I, in my academic life, I read these really long books on technical literature about the Bible and, and different languages and everything. and then when I go home, I read books that are about 10 pages long, and all of those have lots of colorful pictures on them. Um, I drive trains on a train track in my free time. Well, my free time doesn't really exist, but what counts for free time is like driving trains on a train track. I'm not complaining about any of this. I'm just saying that right now, life as a dad um, is just different than it was when I was your age um, at this point. Um, but the, the point of, of saying all of this is to say that even though I really do love sports and I kind of keep track of what's going on in, in most kind of professional sports leagues and college and, and things, I don't have a lot of time to go to Sterling College uh, games. I'm worried that if I took my little three-year-old, he would try to, like, run onto the field while the soccer game is going on. Um, so I don't actually have a great uh, track record of going to uh, Sterling College sporting events uh, very often. Um, but I like to kind of keep track of what my students think. So periodically I ask my students who are mostly athletes um, who the greatest rival is. And by far and in, in away at Sterling College, it's it's Tabor. That's the one that we seem to really hate the most. Um, I don't know that I've ever heard Central Christian being named as uh, as the, the, the biggest rival. Um, so my guess at least is if we're not, if we don't consider you our biggest rival, then you probably don't consider us your biggest rival. Is it what McPherson College, like the crosstown rivalry? Is that the, that's the hated, the hated one? Okay, well, if I ever get invited to speak there, I'll, I'll just say no. Um, but anyway, um, I don't think I, I, I represent your greatest enemy by coming here today. Um, but it is still, you know, a rival institution. I know we do play each other in the athletics at times. And so this gesture of inviting me here is itself an act of hospitality. To invite somebody who's from a different context, and at least on some level represents the rival, to have them come and um, be with you is itself an act of hospitality. And um, I was asked to to give messages both this morning and this evening on the theme of hospitality. And so I think that this is a good example of hospitality. And this morning when I think about hospitality, uh, when I was thinking about what text I would want to to talk about and preach on for this chapel service, I I was deciding which book really exemplified hospitality. And I ultimately came to a book that I hadn't really thought about as an example of hospitality and inhospitality before, but has long been one of my favorite books of the Bible. And that is the book of Esther. But as I thought about the book of Esther, I thought, you know, in many ways, hospitality really is at the heart of the book of Esther and what is going on in the book of Esther and so I want to look at the book of Esther together at sort of a high level and consider how this book in the Old Testament is an example of hospitality and inhospitality and mostly I'm going to do sort of a character study of the four main characters in the book of Esther and and derive lessons that we can have from each of those different characters But before that, we'll kind of go through the plot briefly, because I I realize that many of you are not familiar with this biblical book. And maybe the fact that there is a book in the Bible called Esther is even new to you. Um, So just to kind of get us on the same page, we'll sort of walk through the basic plot of Esther together. And then we'll go into kind of these case studies of the four major characters. Um, But even before getting into that, let me just say, this is a book told on a grand scale. And it's, it's a book that is, dealing with extremely serious uh, issues. it will. Um, it's a book that became far more important after um, what Jewish people call the Shoah, the catastrophe, but we normally know as the Holocaust. Um, this book took on a lot of extra resonance after that because it is a book about attempted genocide and how it was averted. So it is a book that is extremely serious in its subject matter. And yet at the same time, I think when I read it, I can't help but think that the narrator is intending a certain level of comedy to it. The overreactions are comedic um, as it goes along. So at times I will weave in some, some humor because I think the humor is intended by the book, but none of that is to undermine the fact that this deals with extremely serious subject matter. So having said that, let's just overview what this book is about and talk about the plot of the book of Esther. So in the book of Esther, It starts with a chauvinistic king and his advisors. That's what we see in chapters one and two of the Book of Esther. We are met originally with the king by the name of King Xerxes. Some translations have his name as Ahasuerus, um, but it's the same person no matter which translation you're reading. I'll call him Xerxes. Um, But he is chauvinistic king, um, and he banishes his queen, Queen Vashti, for a really ridiculous reason that we'll talk about later. Um, And this opens the door to Queen Esther, to Esther becoming the queen of the book. And Esther is a Jewish woman um, who is um, moved up to this position of prominence here in the book. And also in chapter two, we hear about Mordecai, who is uh, Esther's cousin, but sort of her adopted dad, so so to speak. And he foils an assassination attempt against the king. The crisis of the story happens in chapter three, where we meet Haman, another character that we'll talk about, and Haman is offended by Mordecai, and he plots genocide in revenge for a common slight that Mordecai has against him. Again, comedic overreactions. Um, He decides that because somebody didn't show him the respect he deserves, it's not enough just to get back at him. It's not just enough to try to kill Mordecai. He thinks he now has to kill Mordecai's entire people group just because Mordecai offended him in this small way. And so this is the crisis of the story that Haman plots and gets the king's acceptance for genocide. And then he further plots an especially gruesome death for Mordecai. And so the crisis of the story builds in chapters three through five. And in chapter six through 10, we hear how everything is resolved, how the climax turns out and everything resolves in the favor of the Jewish people. So Mordecai eventually will convince Esther to go and help, um, that she will appear before the king, and that she will plead the case of the Jewish people. Esther is going to cater two different banquets for the king, and um, Xerxes, in the middle of that time, will be reminded of the ways that Mordecai had protected him in the past. This will ultimately lead to Haman's plot against Mordecai failing first, and then later Haman's plot against the Jewish people is also averted and everything turns out okay. So that, in brief, is the plot of the book of Esther. Let's look into the four major characters and derive stories about what we can learn about um, hospitality um, and just faith and life and ethics from these four. And the four characters we'll look at are Haman, Xerxes, Mordecai, and Esther, in that order. Let's pick up with Haman. Now, Haman is the antagonist of all antagonists. He is as bad and as horrible a person as you can imagine on the pages of a story. He has a brittle ego, and he is unwilling to accept others. And so we're going to start by reading how he is introduced in the narrative in chapter three. Esther chapter three, we'll read verses one and two, and then five and six together. So this is how Haman is introduced. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, and the the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay him honor. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned that who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So this is how we are introduced to this figure. And there are a couple of things that help us understand what's going on here a little bit more. And they seem like minor details, but they actually hold some some real significance. The first is that he is described, Haman is described as an Agagite. And the vast majority of you, I would actually guess everyone in here probably, maybe one exception or two exceptions, doesn't know offhand what an Agagite is. I wouldn't have known if I hadn't like, looked it up and done some study, but an Agagite is part of the royal line of the Amalekites. And now maybe a few more people know who the Amalekites are, but even here, most of you probably don't. But the Amalekites are a people group that also lived in the promised land, the land of Canaan, where the people of Israel lived. And in the Old Testament, we can hear about battles back and forth between the Amalekites and the Israelites as they're looking to control the promised land, the present-day state of Israel. And so this subtle reference to calling Haman an Agagite, that seems like something you would just skip over because who knows what that means, instead actually has a lot of significance, because it's a historical rivalry between two different ethnic groups that was deep-seated and long-running. And this is part of what motivates him. It is not simply a slight towards Mordecai, but as soon as Mordecai does this, Haman basically thinks, well, of course, he's a Jew, and we hate the Jewish people. And so there's this basic rivalry built in and baked in between Haman and Mordecai that at the slightest mistake can just build quickly. Um, And so this is what Haman decides to do is as soon as he is... um, offended by Mordecai, realizing that Mordecai is part of his historic rivals, um, he decides that the best thing to do, the way to get back is to commit genocide against the entire people group of the Jewish people group. And so here about how he plots this, and he will, as we'll talk about with Xerxes, we'll see how he sells this to the king and how the king accepts this plan. Um, but he's already accomplished his vision of setting in motion a genocide of the entire people group of the Jewish people across the Persian Empire, the leading empire of the day. And then we jump ahead to chapter 5, and we hear a little bit more about his plan. This is Esther chapter 5, verses 9 and 14 that I will read. Haman went out from Esther's first banquet that day in happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to the height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet, enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Now, again, there are some minor details here that we could think, I have no idea what that means. And I'm guessing most of you have no idea what a cubit is. Um, So when it says 50 cubits high, you might be like, well, maybe that's that big. Maybe that's, who knows how big this is. Well, a cubit, if you are wondering, um, it's a great measuring device uh, because it's always on your person. A cubit is from your elbow to the tip of your finger. So this podium is a little bit more than a cubit long in the Tim Gabrielson cubit size. Um, And obviously each person has different length of arms, um, but roughly we're speaking about a foot and a half. So when he has a 50-cubit pole set up, we're talking about a pole 75 feet high. That's pretty high. And where does he have it set up? In his own yard, in his own house. And what is he gonna put on it? Mordecai. It's basically a giant spear 75 feet up that he envisions somehow getting Mordecai to the top of, dropping him on his neck through his throat so that Mordecai dies on this 75-foot pole at his house and that way, when Haman wakes up each morning and he brews his coffee, and maybe it's been a hard day, it's a Monday, you know, it's just kind of hard to get going on a Monday. So you get your coffee, you're like, I need something to pick me up. He can walk and open the window and be like, oh yes, there's the rotting corpse of my enemy. Things are good, right? Um, they didn't actually have coffee this time, that was invented later, but you get the sense, like, this is ridiculous that this is what he wants to do. It's a gruesome death that shows his victory over Mordecai, all because Mordecai will not bow down to him. As we'll find out, though, Haman's plots will unravel, and when he is accused by Queen Esther of killing the entire Jewish people group, and when Queen Esther gets Xerxes on her side, the punishment is deliciously just. Haman will be captured by the king, or will will be there and be caught by the king, and at this moment somebody happens to say Oh, by the way, King Xerxes, you want to kill Haman for what he has done. There's this pole at his house that's 75 feet high that's already constructed. How convenient. And so Haman will actually meet the death that he had planned for Mordecai on that same pole that he had set up. And ultimately then also the Jewish people will be saved as Esther and Mordecai unwork his plan. So his plots unravel just as he has planned them. They all ultimately unravel. But I think we can learn a lesson from Haman. So first of all, easiest application you've ever had from a speaker. Don't be like Haman. Don't plot genocide anti- against an entire people group. Right? I think we all have that one covered probably. Um, but more than that, you know, on the not so extreme level, I think we can also think about the fact that there are all these old prejudices that exist in our lives, um, things that you might have. And sometimes they are motivated, um, sometimes they are buried uh, through various things like race, class, gender. You know, there are a lot of divisions that can just kind of be there. But some of it might also just be like somebody who did wrong to you back when you were in middle school and like ever since then you just haven't gotten along with that person. Haman is a case study in letting old prejudices cause you to have extreme inhospitality and to never kind of forgive and to never let go. And so don't be dominated by these old prejudices learn that you can get past those. Our second case study is Xerxes. Um, Xerxes is the king. He's a chauvinist, a lover of excess. He's easily swayed by his advisors. When we meet him in chapter one, and I don't have a quotation here, I'll just summarize. But when we meet Xerxes in chapter one uh, of, of the book of Esther, he has a half year long party for Persia. And the climax of that party is a week long open bar. Anyone in the city of Susa can come get drunk, and drink as much alcohol as they want. And he drunkenly requests his life, at his uh, advisor's suggestion, to come b- parade before the entire city of Susa naked, because he thinks he his wife is really attractive, and so he wants to show everybody how attractive his wife is. And this is Queen Vashti, and she quite recently says, um, no, I think that's a bad idea. And his, uh, Again, he has to go to his advisors because he never makes decisions for himself in the entire book of Esther. Um, but he asked his advisors, well, what should we do? Queen Vashti told me no. And again, part of that comic overreaction that happens in Esther is advisors say, if you don't do something, if you don't depose her and send her away, every single wife in the entire realm of Persia, stretching from India to Egypt, is going to rebel against their husbands there's really nothing to do, you have to get rid of her. What will they think otherwise? And so we see a king who's chauvinistic, loves excess, and is swayed by his advisors. And we see that again in chapter three, when Haman comes to him with this plot to kill the Jewish people. So here is Esther chapters three, verses eight and nine and 11. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, who keep themselves separate their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administration for the royal treasury. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. So Haman sells the genocide of the Jewish people to King Xerxes, basically by saying, well, they're different, they're weird. They don't act like the rest of us. They keep themselves separate. And what's going on here is basically the Jewish practice of kosher. Kosher food laws restrict what Jewish people can eat. And so you can't just automatically go to a dinner if you're a Jewish person, um, because you have to kind of know what's being served, how it's been prepared. And so it naturally kind of meant that the Jewish people ate separately from the rest of the empire. And Haman seizes on this difference and attributes it to the worst possible thing that they hate the rest of the people group, um, that they are not part of the Persian empire. And the king just buys it um, fully and goes along with Haman's plan. And Haman estimates that's going to take 10,000 talents of silver to carry this out. Uh, Now a talent of silver is about 75 pounds. And so 10,000 talents of silver is 750,000 pounds of silver. That's a lot of silver. I have no idea how accurate this was to the time, but last night I Googled, what is a pound of silver cost? And according to Google last night, it was $750 per pound of silver. So he basically, Haman has pledged $200 million to exterminate the Jewish people. And the king says, don't worry, I got this covered. You can take it out of the royal treasury instead. So the king spots Haman a cool $200 million to commit the genocide. At the end of this, Haman and Xerxes are completely happy with themselves, and everybody else is going to be bewildered. So the couriers, uh, this is Esther 3, verse 15, the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was beaten. So my next lesson is don't be like Xerxes. Don't mistrust those who differ from you, and don't just kind of buy the worst scenario that other people might tell you. This is a passive inhospitality on the king's part, but it's still extremely consequential. We'll move to our third uh, figure, Mordecai, who is a faithful man committed to doing right. In chapter 2, we meet Mordecai and we meet him immediately with this picture of hospitality. So this is Esther chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Ja'ir the son of Shimei, Shimei, and the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, this is the other name for Esther, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So our first impression of Mordecai is somebody who's good, who's righteous, but is specifically hospitable. Uh, he has a cousin who has been orphaned and so he raises esther as if esther was his own daughter and then this i think makes chapter 4 of esther even more meaningful in esther chapter 4 verses 12 through 14 when mordecai realizes the plot to exterminate the jewish people and realizes that esther's queen is the only person who can intervene he tells esther this uh, through kind of an intermediary They're, they're sending messengers back and forth when esther's words were reported to mordecai he sent back this answer Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Now, he's saying this to a woman who's effectively his daughter. So this would be a poignant moment um, because as we'll talk about, Esther is risking her life by going to the king. And so I'd say... I'll move quickly to the point here. I think the lesson is do be like Mordecai. Be generous to those who are in need. Be principled and press for justice. Um, This is an act of hospitality that shows to Esther. And in a different way, it's also hospitality that is shown to his fellow Jews as well. But let's come then to the fourth case study, Esther herself. She is the hero of the story. She is the one who risks her life to save the people by preparing banquets for the king. Just before the quotation uh, that we just heard from Mordecai, this is what Esther had sent to Mordecai in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Then Esther instructed the messenger to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that they are to be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives but 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So Mordecai has asked Esther to intervene and it said, you're the only one who can save the Jewish people. And she says, yeah, but he hasn't talked to me in 30 days. And if I enter his courts unannounced, he could just chop off my head. And given what he did to Vashti at the start of the story of Esther, she has reason to be worried that he's not really treating his wives very well. So she has real cause for concern that if she appears before him, she will be killed automatically. And then we went to that Mordecai quotation that we just heard, where Mordecai says, this is true, it could happen, but everyone's going to die anyway. Might as well give this a shot, is basically what Mordecai says. And so this is then Esther's response in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish." Esther is convinced that maybe God raised her up for this time and this time specifically. And so she is emboldened and strengthened. She goes with courage before the king. He does grant her the royal scepter so that she is not killed. And rather than making her plea right away, probably realizing that the king really likes to be buttered up, that he really loves excess, she invites him instead to a banquet. He goes to the banquet, enjoys himself, asks her again, what do you want? And she says, come to banquet number two. Again, she's buttering him up. She knows he loves excess. She wants to get him on her good side. And it's at the second banquet that they have together that she's able to make her plea for the entire people group and accuse Haman as the person who has done them wrong. And she has sufficiently won the king over by that point that he listens to her, he is swayed by her, he turns on Haman and the story resolves well as Haman, the evil character, meets his bitter end and the Jewish people are redeemed and saved. And it all happens because the extreme inhospitality of Haman is undone by the simple hospitality of Esther, offering two banquets to the king and making such a reasonable request as do not kill my people group. And so I think Esther is this beautiful, wonderful story of hospitality and inhospitality and how ultimately Esther's hospitality defeated the extreme and evil inhospitality of King. If you'll join me, um, let me pray for us and then I will dismiss you after. dear Father, I thank you for this, uh, this group. I thank you for everyone who has come here this morning. I thank you for the story in our Bibles of of courage that we see in Esther, and of how you worked things out to make sure that the Jewish people were redeemed and saved from this evil plot. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn from these characters of Haman, Xerxes, uh, Mordecai, and Esther. And I just pray for, for the students and all the things that they have going on in their lives and minds right now, as well as the professors and and uh, staff that are here too. Thank you for um, all that they are and be with them throughout their day. And we ask these things In the name of your Son, and the power of your Holy Spirit, amen. All right, you're dismissed. God's blessings on you.